I have to say, as we consider God's word, I want you to know, I think in all of literature and entertainment and all those things, there are things that move us, aren't there? Stories move us. Music moves us. A good story captures our attention, doesn't it? Good music moves our emotions, sometimes deep within us. But a true story of redemption put to music. Wow, now that's amazing. And this here in Psalm 40 is a song of David. He has put to words his redemptive story. It is also a song of our Savior Jesus Christ. Because the author to the book of Hebrews applies a portion of this psalm directly to Jesus Christ. Is this your song too? Hear the words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. As we consider this psalm, the last penultimate psalm, we'll look at one more next week and then take a break from the psalms and go back to the New Testament. But let's look to the Lord briefly in prayer. Lord, as we consider this particular psalm, we pray that you will let these words fall on believing hearts that understand it, believing ears that hear it, and Lord, souls that are changed by the power of your Spirit to bring them upon us, to change us, and to mold us, and to shape us, to conform us to the image of Christ. 
I pray, Lord, that everything that is thought here, spoken here, done here in this place, unless it is consistent with your word, shall pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to apologize to some of our younger folks here in this room because they're not going to identify with this as much. But for those of you who are older, particularly the generation older than me, if you hear the words Johnny Cash, something comes to mind. When you hear that name, if you're older and you remember him, it immediately brings images or music to your mind. Perhaps if you are younger, you've seen a movie about Johnny Cash or about his music and those things, and perhaps you are brought to mind the memories of that particular movie. Why was this man impactful? Was it his voice that seemed to be rather unique amongst those singing in our, on our airwaves? Was it his talent? Or perhaps I think what it was, his authenticity. Many were moved because his music seemed to tell a story about his rescue by another. And this is the heart of the psalm this morning. David is talking about his rescue by another. Psalm 40 is his recording the overflowing heart of a believer which cannot be contained but must absolutely testify of God's redemption. And so there he says, in a nutshell, the three points of the sermon this morning, believers are blessed, believers are evangelists, and believers seek God's deliverance. First of all, believers are blessed. In fact, that's one of the verses. Verse 4 said, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That means that person is a believer. The Lord is whom he placed his hope and his trust in. But believers are blessed in this way. By their personal experience of salvation. David is not, in writing the Psalms, talking about some general idea of redemption or some ethereal plan that is beyond our personal experience. No, he's talking about how God saved him, who he is as an individual in real time and a real place. And this personal experience of salvation is expressed in words like this in verse 2. He, that is the Lord, drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Now, on the one hand, we know this might contain some figurative language. I don't know of an instance where David necessarily was thrown into a cistern and in this dry cistern with perhaps some mud at the bottom where he was unable to get his footing and climb out the top of that pit. Now we do know people who were in that position. Joseph sold by his brothers after he was in this pit or cistern. Jeremiah who was thrown in a pit by his enemies and left there until someone had mercy on him and got him out by permission of the king. There are others who experience great distress and great difficulty in times. Perhaps this is figurative to say he was in a position where he could not escape. Whatever it was, he describes it 
as the pit or cistern of destruction. And it's so muddy, he cannot gain his footing. There's no way he can get out. In other words, he needs rescue from the pit and the mud of life. It could be, like in the previous couple of psalms, a description of an illness from which he could not recover. It could have been a literal experience. Perhaps he's even describing what it was like when he tried to capture Jerusalem coming up through a cistern. Who knows? Whatever it is, he recognizes that God did it. God brought him security on the rock and sure footing. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. In other words, from the, the terrible situation of being placed in a place where he could not escape, God took him, put him on a safe and secure footing so that he was now safe and delivered. This is what David is describing. Now, I doubt many of us have been stuck, stuck in a cistern unable to get out, slipping and sliding and all that kind of thing. But I know all of us have been in a place, perhaps at times, where we feel like we cannot escape. God is the only one who can give us true rescue in such a situation. But this blessing of rescue, this personal experience that David is describing in just one short verse... He said in verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You see, the blessing is not just our personal experience of salvation, but it's by seeing others experience salvation by God's grace through our testimony. He talks about this new song. And some of us, as we read this, of course, we get the idea that David's writing a, a new song, is what it says. Uh, the word new also means fresh. This is an idea that it's not just the song that is new, but it's God's action of redemption that was new in his life. This was a new experience for him of God's blessing. In this particular circumstance, whatever it is he's describing, he's able to write of how God has delivered him. And God will use results of God's new song. This is not David's new song. This is God's new song because it was initiated by an act of rescue or redemption in the life of David. And if God has rescued you in a certain circumstance or situation, or God has rescued you from a particular sin or something like that in your life, you have a new song to sing even if you don't have the skills and ability and talent to write the song, or the skills and ability and talent to sing the song, yet you have that song in your heart. And the effects of others through that song, God, if you give credit and glory to God as your Savior, the effect is others may come to trust in Him too. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Isn't that a great thing? God will rescue us 
give us this great desire to tell others of the rescue. And he might even use if that, that song that you give, whether it's in word or testimony or actual singing or whatever it is, God can use that if it's consistent with his word. God can use that by his spirit to convict and convince sinners of their own sin and rescue them. I have to ask the question, what inspires movie makers, songwriters, and other creative people? What inspires them? Well, we could come up to a lot of answers to that question, couldn't we? But there's one thing that seems to inspire that gets almost everybody who's involved in that particular event, whether it's a book or whether it's a movie or a song or whatever it is, and that is new acts of mercy. We love the story of somebody being shown mercy, somebody being forgiven of a sin, somebody receiving an unexpected gracious act, somebody given something they don't deserve. We love those things. They inspire us and they get us going and together. When a mysterious stranger gives someone a gift, when an unusual act of generosity inspires others, it's something that gets the creative juices flowing of the author or of others. What is your new song? To whom can you sing it? Sometimes it may be that God has put us in a deep and dark place. Maybe it is that we're experiencing a very difficult time of illness. Maybe it is that we're experiencing a difficult time in relationship with others. Yet in those times, sometimes God will remind us of his precious promises, remind us of the redemption that underlies even all these conditions, and give us the opportunity to tell family members or friends or acquaintances who would come to us in our time of need the song that God has given us that we belong to him and that he has placed us on secure footing that even if we should die, even if we should lose, even if we should forfeit everything in this life, yet we are in the rock of Jesus Christ because he's forgiven us of our sins. That is our song. Let us sing it. Why? Because if you're a believer, you're an evangelist. Now, it doesn't mean that every one of us is going to have the gift of evangelism. There are some people who are, by God's grace, gifted by the Spirit with evangelistic skills beyond measure. And it seems to be wherever they are, they can't help but evangelize whoever's there. And they might do it in such a gracious and wonderful way that people listen. Not everyone has that gift of evangelism, but everyone is given who is a believer. Everyone is given the desire to tell others what Jesus has done for them, or they haven't really believed it in the first place. First of all, what are they evangelizing? They're evangelizing God's wondrous deeds. You know, verse 4 reminds us that the great blessing that's there, the effects of others in trust, that was the end of point one there. It says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who turns, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. This is a conversion. Those who have followed a lie or have followed the philosophies of this world, the idols of the day, and now because of the testimony of God's people, the church, that's where 
God's design is for the world to be confronted with the gospel is through the church, God's people. And because of that, there will be some who turn from that idolatry and begin to place their trust in the true God of heaven. Why? Because the wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us we have proclaimed. That's verse 5. I will proclaim and tell of them. That is your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. God's multiplied marvels and thoughts. Think about this. Not just what he's done, but his very thoughts, his thinking, his intentions, his plans. That's what the word means. In other words, whatever God has designed for us are the things that we tell others. How can we know God's thoughts and plans? We can't know all of them. Some of the secret things of God belong to him and him alone. But many of the secret things of God's counsel is revealed by God's word. And by God's grace, he has let it be known that his desire is to save sinners. He has let it known that his desire is not to distinguish between Jew and Gentile. He has let it known that his plan of salvation is that once you are saved, he will never let you go. These are some of the wonderful things and deeds and thoughts that we can tell others. And these thoughts, it says, were toward us. In other words, towards believers, towards those who have been redeemed, towards the invisible church, if we want to use that language from the confession. Here it is. There those events, marvels, and thoughts toward believers. And they're underlying the ceremonies. Verse 6 says this, And sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Does God want us to carry out the ceremonies of worship? In the Old Testament, it was burnt offerings, sin offerings, and the like. Did he want the worshippers to do that? Yes, he did. But even more, he wanted the meaning behind these things. It wasn't the rote practice of ceremony that he wanted. It was the believing heart that offered it by faith. Here it is. He doesn't want us to come to church and just go through all the motions of coming to church. That's not what he desires. Now, does he want us to come to worship? Absolutely. In fact, it's a command of Scripture. Don't give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing but encourage one another all the more until the day approaches. In other words, unless you're providentially hindered, skipping worship is a sin. And yet here, we're reminded it's not the worship itself that God wants. It's a believing heart. He wants us to come to him with a desire to be committed to him and obey him because we trust in him. It's interesting the word here for he gives me an open ear. It's actually the word he dug out or excavated my ear. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Commentators disagree on what he means by that. In fact, if you have certain translations that won't even use that language at all, one, trans, one commentator write, writes that he's talking about the concept of those slaves who were ready to gain their freedom, but they loved their masters so much that they had their, their ear pierced through by an all at the doorpost. And it signified that they were committed and dedicated to him. 
I don't know if I agree with that commentator or not. The second commentator wrote this. This is an illustration of Moses when he was appointing the priests and he was anointing them with the blood of the sacrifice. And he anointed them on the right big toe and on the right thumb and on the earlobe of their ear. And it designated that they were anointed and separated as holy by the atoning blood of a sacrifice. I don't know if I believe that either in this particular context of this thing, although I think it's a true concept. The third one says this, and I, I tend to fall in this category. Revelation, when it gives the letters to the churches, it says, this church has these good things and these bad things, but I want you to understand in these circumstances, I want you to persevere in the faith. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think this is what David is talking about. God has given us an ear to hear. He made us. He dug it out from the dust of the earth. In our mother's wombs, he made us and formed us so that we would hear not just the wonders of birds singing and airplanes going overhead and the wonders of creation and things that man has made, but to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the very word of God. That in itself is a wondrous act of God that he would give us an ear because our ears are not attuned to the word of God unless the spirit has worked in our life and opened those ears so that we would hear and believe. That too is something we praise God for and that too is something that God desires in the life of a believer. But it's not just evangelists who tell about the marvels and thoughts of God. It's also the believers who tell about God's word and his will. He says in verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. He says in verse 7, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me that I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. This is an evidence of the new creation in David's life and in the believer's life because now it's not just that we have God's word available in the Torah in the first five books of the Bible. It's that now we have that law written on our heart. And therefore the believer's commitment is to whom? To the Lord. To his law. Not because they want to earn their salvation but because God has opened their ears that they would hear and respond to the gospel. And then because they love him for what he has done, they're committed to him and want to do what God tells them to do. But the amazing thing about this passage is not just the change in the believer's heart from wanting to do their own will to now wanting to do God's will. Of course, now it's a battle, isn't it? We battle every day. Do I do what God tells me to do or do I do what I want to do? But the, the glory of this passage is the author to the book of, or to the, to the Hebrews, he said this applies to Jesus Christ. This isn't just David here. This is about Jesus. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book that is written to me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In other words, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the word of God. He didn't have the same experience of David who, who at times failed to do the word, had the desire but failed. Jesus completely fulfilled it so that there would be one sacrifice for all times. This is why we don't have the messy 
bloody sacrifice of animals in the front of our sanctuary is because Jesus accomplished it. And we're reminded, Jesus, when he talked to the people, he said, all of the scriptures testify about me. This was the Old Testament he's talking about. And he's reminding us that Christ's commitment to the Lord is complete. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, when he writes his commentary on this particular chapter, he applies the whole chapter to Jesus and forgets about what David says about it. He says this is all about Christ. It gives you a whole different perspective of Psalm 40. But the evangelists don't just tell about God's multiplied marvels and thoughts or God's word and will, they also talk about the gospel. And this gospel here is one of righteousness. You might have noticed in your ESV Bibles when you were following along as I read the word deliverance, I substituted the word righteousness, and that's intentional because that's a literal translation of this particular word. Now I understand in a broader concept this is the, the idea that's being uh, run across by David as he's telling the news of deliverance, the gospel of God's grace. But the specific word that he uses is very important here. It's the word righteousness. You see, David and the other authors of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit knows that he doesn't have any righteousness. The good news of righteousness is that God will supply it. Habakkuk says that we will live by faith, not by works. It is Christ's righteousness, not my own. When Jesus proclaimed the good news of righteousness, he was proclaiming to the people, even the most moral people on the face of the earth, the Pharisees, they knew God's word. They memorized God's word. They built a hedge around God's word, even adding to it. They were the most moral people in the universe in that particular day and time. But he would even say to them, you need righteousness. So here it is, the gospel of righteousness, the good news, that here is the supply. It's in Jesus. I have not restrained my lips, as you know, Lord. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. Jesus has a parable, doesn't he, where he, he gives direction. You're not going to hide your lamp under a bed. You're not going to hide it under a bush. You're going to let the whole world see it. This is what we want to do. We want other people to know the righteousness supplied to us by Christ, a righteousness apart from which we will not see God. And here this gospel of righteousness is described in these ways. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. Of course, God is faithful when we're not. God is always faithful to his promises. He will carry them out, and he will save his people. It's not that God says, okay, I might save people if that's my, my joy at the present time. No, he says, I will save them. Jesus says, not one will be plucked from my hand that has been given me. And then he describes his chesed and his truth, that is, his loyal covenant faithfulness. This is the idea here. Your steadfast love, this is that term I love to use in Hebrew. You all know about it by now if you go to church here for a few weeks. It's this word that expresses God's covenant loyalty and faithfulness, his mercy and love, despite the errancy and the truancy and the rebellion of God's people. God is faithful to those he has called unto himself. And, of course, too. 
is truth. Don't we need truth in a world of deception and lie? Here it is, God's gospel of righteousness, faithfulness, salvation, hesed, truth. You ever wondered, like I have, what it would have been like to be the ideal butler in England? Yeah, this kind of seems like it comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? You know, I got to thinking about this. So, so the ideal butler, in my mind, I get the picture of Anthony Hopkins, don't you? If you've seen some of those movies, you know, he's got that right posture and that right uh, kind of humility and kind of, uh, uh, you know, just removing himself from the scene. You know, he's always loyal. Even if he doesn't agree with his master, even if he knows certain things about the topic that he wants to contribute but won't because it's not his job to do so, he's always loyal and defers to the master in all things. The limelight's not on him. It's on how the house should glorify the, ser- or the, the master. All the servants under his care should do all things in that house to glorify the master and lift him up as the most important person in the realm of the household. This is what we're to be in the house of God. Is we're to be those servants. On the one hand, we have great responsibility. We have the wonderful responsibility of gaining the precious promises and gaining all the things that God gives us by his Holy Spirit. And in order to display these things, whether it's the fruit of the Spirit or the use of the gifts of the Spirit, whether it's the discipling of the people or the uplifting of the church, all the things that the New Testament talk about, we're to do that for what reason? To glorify the Master. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we do this in part by living the gospel, committed to it, obeying the gospel, out of God's placing in us faith and trust in Him, and then by telling other people of what God has done. What does the Spirit within us do? What is one of His jobs? It's to testify about Jesus. Some of you have heard me say, there are people who say I'm a very spiritual person. They need to tell that person in that particular circumstance. So you're all about Jesus Christ, aren't you? My understanding of the Holy Spirit from the Word of God is that the Holy Spirit, what he always does is he testifies about Jesus. So here it is, when we're believers, this spirit within us is testifying about Jesus. It's not just a presentation or a model, but it's a heartfelt, legitimate testimony of what God has done. And then, believers seek God's deliverance. David has already mentioned that that God is gracious. He has given him wonderful experiences of deliverance in daily life even. When we turn to verse 11, it says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Some commentators write that this is a a request from God. Please preserve me. Please do not restrain your mercy from me. But it's not. It's eager anticipation that God doesn't do this to his children. You will not restrain your mercy. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will preserve me. So he's first of all seeking God's mercy based on his hesitant faithfulness. Not seeking it as in not knowing if it's coming. 
seeking it in an eager anticipation of the hope of someone who knows that God will rescue him. He can say this because it's not about the problem of the moment, which sometimes God may say no. Sometimes you ask for relief from cancer and God says no. Sometimes you ask for relief in your relationship and God says no. Sometimes you ask for more in your paycheck and God says no. But one thing he will do is verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see there more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. God will not restrain his mercy from the sinner who repents from his sins. So you're asking for mercy when encompassed by evils, that is, by all the battles this world brings. And the second thing is when you're overwhelmed by your own sins. There are two things here that are beyond number or incomprehensible. One of them is the wondrous deeds and marvels of God. The other is our own sins. Think about that. The two things this psalm describes as beyond count are God's wonders and our sins. What do you have to give to God? Not righteousness, not stuff, not worthiness, but sin and rebellion. What does God give? He will give judgment to unbelievers. He will give all of the blessings that he gives to the common person, rain in his time and all those kinds of things, but he gives countless deeds of mercy to his people. Deliverance from evils and sins. Also, deliverance from enemies. This is the question. The first is a statement, God, you will give me mercy for my sins that are overwhelming me. But be pleased, O Lord, this is the request to deliver me. Make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who sneak to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame to save me. Aha, aha. He's asking for deliverance from his enemies in the here and now. Those who seek to snatch his life away, perhaps it's literal, perhaps it's those enemies around him or within his own household who are treacherous and rebellious and want to take his life, or perhaps it is just those who want to take away the good gifts that God has given him in life. Whatever it is, there are those who mock believers. So many of us says, aha, aha. In other words, they're saying, here, I've got you now. And the world wants to say to the church, gotcha now. Here is our idea of righteousness. Your idea doesn't match. It's outdated. It's old-fashioned. It doesn't meet the, meet the culture of the day. Aha, we've gotcha now. He's asking for deliverance from such people. Again, why? Is it so that he could gain? So that he could get more wealth and more women and more horses? Was it for all those things? No, it was for this. It says, verse 16, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. It's not for his own benefit. It's for the purpose of congregational praise. It's so that all the people of God could get together and say, Great is the Lord. 
I'm not here to preach a sermon on eschatology, but one of the pictures I have was R.C. Sproul when he gave his idea of how it will take place on the day of the Lord when that great trumpet will sound and Christ will be coming down from heaven on that last day. And he describes it like this. This is like the victorious king who's coming back in from battle and he has won the battle and the fanfare is coming and all the people in the city see their king coming from a distance and they all run out to greet him and come back to him with great fanfare so that the king and his people are all celebrating together the inauguration of a new phase of their kingdom. This is what David is describing here. When the great congregation praises God and says, Great is our Lord, it's not as if we are just doing this in response to God. We are doing it together with our Savior. As we understand what he has done together with him, we say, Great is the Lord. In realization, the Lord is our only hope. What does he say? As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. He is my help. He is my deliverer. There's one deliverer. There's one hope. It's not money. It's not another person. It's not our rugged individualism. It's not our work ethic. It's not technology. It's the triune God. You see, what is the greatest joy of the believer? Is it that God hears our prayer? That's a great joy. That's expressed here in Psalm 40. Is it that we are forgiven? That is perhaps one of the greatest joys we will ever experience. Is it that God uses our testimony to point others to Christ? That is a wonderful joy that God gives us. Is it that others join us in praising God for his help and deliverance? You see, I cannot begin to stay, say enough of the different marvels and wonders that God brings us. But in the end, what is it? Great is not the church, not the pastor, not his preaching, not the Sunday school program, not the ceremony, not the music, sorry, musicians, not any of those things. It's the Lord. He is our hope and our deliverance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that they are never-ending. Nothing can ever change them. Your word shall never fail. Because you have promised. Your word shall not go forth void. Lord, remind us that these promises are true. And give us the joy of salvation. That we might be the evangelists you have called us to be. With the new song in our mouth. When we experience another phase of your wondrous deeds and your grace. Lord, help us to see you and to see you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.